0: Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning, and ultimately, to keep growing. We sell happy. That's the motto of Mendocino Farms, and this is the story of its co-founder, Ellen Chen. Mendocino Farms is a neighborhood sandwich restaurant based in Southern California, which currently has 22 locations with half a dozen more scheduled to grow throughout California and Texas. Ellen and her husband created the concept over 15 years ago, with the first restaurant opening in downtown LA back in 2005. In this episode, you'll hear about the start of Mendocino Farms and how they not only disrupted the sandwich market, but how they created an emotional connection, which sounds pretty crazy because we're just talking sandwiches and salads here. But when I walked into a Mendocino Farms restaurant for the first time, I felt happy. I look around and other guests look pretty happy. There's giant signs all around literally spelling out the word happy in lights and large fonts and cheerful colors. It's obvious that Ellen and her team focused on creating a feeling that you're in a part of her home and are a guest, rather than just being a customer. Because for Ellen, it wasn't just about creating delicious sandwiches with quality meats and organic veggies. It was about making a difference, a difference for Mendo employees, for the farms and farmers that they partnered up with, and for each neighborhood they open a location in. Mendocino Farms really does sell happy, but it wasn't always this cheerful. Ellen and I talk about the struggles with her start in the restaurant business, about her in-laws taking a second mortgage on their home and loaning them the money, to cleaning bathrooms because Ellen thought she needed to learn every part of the business. And one of her more memorable professional failures included a prior restaurant that she and Mario opened up in Westwood, right near UCLA's campus, only to see it surprisingly fail when it first opened. But the lessons they learned from that store in particular has been integral in helping Mendocino Farms be as successful as it is today. It's also fascinating to hear how Ellen and Mario balance their business partnership and also their personal relationship through the dating and getting married and having a tough pregnancy and having the kids. What I love about Ellen is she clearly does not like the status quo. She and the Mendocino Farms team have a motto called GBET, get better every day. And it's so clear how passionate they are to strengthen their process and to build a team that cares about every point of contact that one of their Mendo guests have. I'm inspired by her passion to build this community, which seems insanely happy, and they have the most loyal customers, and I'm totally going to steal her motto in life of getting better every day. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you on the show, and I can't wait to hear more about Mendocino Farms. Before we dive deeper in the restaurant concept, would you mind sharing how it all began? Where did you grow up?
1: I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was four and a half with my parents. It was in the 70s. And where we ended up was in Northern California and definitely not a very diverse, very homogenous area, which I think I got a lot of lessons um, growing up in, you know, a small, very Caucasian place being kind of the only Asian there. Learn kind of how to grow up and assimilate in a very different environment. But grew up in a little town called Moraga and then moved to Lafayette very soon afterwards. Went through all the way through high school and then went to school at UC San Diego and studied economics. Definitely an eye opening experience for me to go to a very big university with just a lot of different types of people. It was almost like this aha moment of, oh my gosh, there's people like me. (laughs) And it was just, it was such a great experience. You know, like all good Asian kids, my parents always beat it into me that you want to have a great, you either got to be a doctor, an engineer, or a business person. (laughs) And I definitely was not as smart as I think the more stereotypical kind of like math geniuses. So I chose business. I was an econ major because I just felt like for me, I really wanted to become an entrepreneur one day. And that was because it was inspired by my father. He was an entrepreneur. He grew up super poor and totally made it on his own. He was in the manufacturing business. So there's a really interesting parallel in terms of kind of blue collar, what he got into yet with a very smart, I mean, he was an engineer. Mm-hmm. And he always just inspired me with what he did. And so in the back of my head, I always knew that one day I'd like to start my own business so that I could get back to the community that I was in. So I just felt like a business career, like a business degree was good. Yeah. I was an econ major. It was the closest thing they had at UCSD. <laughs> and then really... From there, my life was pretty planned by my parents. It's like, you have to go down this path. Right. This is what you have to do. So I knew that if I was a business major or an econ major, then afterwards I want to become a consultant. Okay. Because in a consultant, I can actually get... Uh, exposure to different industries and really learn businesses in different ways. And so went to college, econ major, (laughs) got an internship at, back then it was Cooper's and Mm -hmm. (laughs) Librand, but now, you know, they've merged. So that, and then I went to Arthur Anderson. So I was like, okay, I'm going to set myself up. So graduating, I went to go work at, back then it was Anderson Consulting which now is Accenture. Okay. So that was kind of my background. And I kind of primed myself, which is so crazy, like at that age that I would even Mm -hmm. think in that way. But again, thanks to my parents, I really do appreciate what they gave to me, got me to
0: kind of where I am today. So Anderson was your first job out of college. It was my first- yeah. What was your assignment or what did you work on?
1: I actually, it was really interesting. I went to go work for Sprint PCS back then, which is really wildly known now. Back then, they, it was not a very well-known cellular network. Mm-hmm. So they had just developed their technology for cell phones. Okay. And so it was really fun. Literally, there I got to work. My first project, I was scared every single day I went to work, but I reported to the CFO. And so basically, I did all his reporting every day, learned Excel. I mean, just learned so much. Mm-hmm being 20, 21, I think, at that point, right. working next side-by-side side to the CFO. And then from there, I you know went to go work for their, for their technology department. But just the best place to learn because I was thrown right into the thick of Amazing. it. I actually got to see something built from ground up. At that point, they had... I mean, we had a huge building in Orange County, but it was not filled. My second assignment was to go actually work in the customer service department and write all their processes. So Within Sprint. Within Sprint. So it was crazy, a 20-year-old. I mean, if you called in and you had an issue... I was the one that basically put together a binder of what's the tree? What does that look like? How do you answer the questions? Of the talking (laughs) flowchart. Totally. Really process minded, but I hated it because it was so much pressure. But to this day, I really, I mean, I thank them because it set me up for what I'm doing today. So
0: rewarding too. Yeah, it
1: was, I mean, it's really exciting, but it's funny to see now it's like Sprint PCS is a household name.
0: (laughs) So how long were you at Anderson for?
1: I was there for about two and a half years. Because after that, I was on that project for a while. Then I was sent out to Houston and Cleveland. And that's when I thought to myself, I don't know if I really want to travel this far. So at that point, I kind of wanted to explore the creative side of me, which then I thought, okay, I'm going to go work for a marketing agency, totally different, okay. and went to go work for a small boutique agency here in LA okay. and worked on the Accura account. So still very client-focused in account management, but totally different. Okay. How did you like the client side? It's just like being a consultant, right? You're taking care of the clients and you're kind of having to preempt their needs and, you know, take care of them. So not too different, which is really surprising because mm-hmm. I thought it'd be, but de- definitely different environment. Definitely more laid back. How long were you there for? I was there for about a year. That's when kind of like after that, the whole internet boom, which is crazy. That was like in the 90s, <laughs> dating myself, um, <laughs> kind of emerged. And one of my friends said, hey, I have a really good friend who is starting a digital agency. You should go talk to them because she knew my passion for technology. So I went to go work for them and it was a startup. I was number four in the company. And it was another insight to seeing a company grow. Mm -hmm. And it was really exciting because it was all new territory. The internet today, it's like the norm, really new. My account was Cheap Tickets. So kind of a cool account. Back then it was pretty hot. Now it's like, who's Cheap Tickets? (laughs) So it was really fun. It was kind of like this era that it was exciting. It was so new. Then that's where I went to go and worked for the next place I worked, which was another startup, bigger. Okay, And that startup got acquired by Electronic Arts. And okay. it was a fun, it was a really fun company. It was Pogo.com. Just the name itself makes you smile. Right. It was an online gaming company. So very entrepreneurial because startup got to like wear so many different hats. Mm-hmm. And I love that, You did, okay. you know, because it kind of fueled that entrepreneurial kind of side in me. So it was tough because when Electronic Arts bought us, which most people, they're like, that's such a cool company, but it was really corporate. I mean, the mm-hmm. office was so big. I didn't even know like where I really fit in. And that's when I thought, you know what, I think it's time for me to kind of reinvent myself.
0: Okay. And so you you did the numerate side with kind of shadowing the sprint PCOS yeah. kind of CFO, and then you did the creative side. Did you know what you wanted to do with that entrepreneurial body? No,
1: I I really didn't. I think that was like the million dollar question is like, what the heck do I do now? I just knew that I wanted to be able to make an impact, you know, and I don't know that sounds so, you know, like cliche, but I wanted to make a difference because I I did a lot of different things. I just didn't know what that would look like. And that's when I decided, you know, I'm just going to take time off. I met my business partner, now husband during that time when I was trying to and when I was thinking about
0: leaving electronic arts and he is the one that kind of got me into this restaurant industry. And so how did that come about in terms of conversation? You're just like here's my background, here's what I kind of like don't it seems very interdisciplinary. How did it evolve to you know what, what? it is today?
1: It never, we never really talked about it. It was just my curiosity. I love to learn. I think that's why the consulting Mm -hmm. thing was so interesting to me because I could learn and be a part of so many different things. And I've always wanted to go and work in the restaurant some way, somehow. I don't want to go back to like my childhood, but being Asian, my parents just wanted me to focus at school and everyone always got some kind of job, like at a yogurt shop, a coffee shop or something in the food industry. There was no way my parents were gonna let me do that. <laughs> so at this point, I'm an adult. I, you know, I was like, I'm gonna decide and I like to have my husband or a husband now or a boyfriend back then. I go, Hey, I just wanna learn. Will you let me come work for free? <laughs> you know, I'll do anything you want. I don't even care. I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do. He like he's free like, labor, sure. Yeah, and he as an entrepreneur, he's like, Yeah, of course, come in. And so funny because it was down in our restaurant first restaurant, it was SKUs, it was in downtown LA. And I remember working at the register. And my friends who worked in all the like law firms and and they literally like would walk in and look <laughs> at me and they didn't know what to do because they were like so embarrassed for me. And I go, hey, how are right. you guys? Welcome to SKU's. They were mortified. They're like, what are you doing? And, and I you got, didn't
0: care at all. You no, didn't have any type of pride that you needed to no, address. No, there was,
1: you know what? There was uncomfortable. But you know what? That's when I really like appreciated even more. I'm like, you know what? This is what people do who make money, right? Like we're just all trying to figure out this is a career. And I I'm just trying to figure it out, just like everyone else. I go back to I correlate that back to my dad. He was an engineer, smartest guy ever. But you would find him on the factory. That's where he was most comfortable with you know, his team. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I loved it. Because you know what? Being a business owner, and I think it's of any industry, you got to learn every single part of your business. So that if that includes, which I did, cleaning a bathroom, guess what? I'm the best bathroom cleaner of a restaurant ever, right? I'm the best... Prep person. And um, that was just part of just wanting to learn the business. And the register was fun. It's such a different thing than sitting behind a desk. Mm -hmm. So I was proud. I was happy, but I was learning. And then, you know, it was just a great collaboration because my husband's uber creative, the guy with all the crazy ideas. And I'm more the process, like pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Person, So we just sit around and we talk about his business and I'd give him insight as like, would you ever consider doing this? And then that's when he goes, hey, would you ever want to come and be my business partner? And at that time, we had these dreams of we're going to scale this and we're going to let's franchise this concept. So I said, of course, I invested money. Because I wanted it to make sure that it wasn't just like, I'm your girlfriend, so I get (laughs) this job. But I put money into it, and we really worked it. We then opened
0: up a second restaurant together. And I'm not as familiar. What is SKU's?
1: Oh, yeah. SKU's was a fast, casual teriyaki concept, probably ahead of its time. Okay. He was successful in terms of growing it, but I think there was kind of a cap, especially back then. It's a very small niche of age, category of a category. Okay. So you open up the second
0: SKUs. It did well.
1: Uh, No, that was probably one of the biggest failures (laughs) ever. But the best failure because we actually got
0: to learn from it. Okay. And so the first one seemed to do well. Why did the second one crash and burn?
1: So first one, that was his second, the second one in downtown was his second one. He actually had another very successful one, but the lease was too expensive. He wouldn't sign it. We were in the financial district in downtown LA. So very much urban, you got a lunch crowd, you got to cater, you know, it was dense. It was a great product, Mm -hmm. but naturally you have a big, you know, just, you have a big audience there. So we thought, hey, if we can go into another location with as much density, we're going to do great, right? So we picked Westwood in Los Angeles, which... You know, if you've been there, it's dense. You got UCLA campus right, the right campus, there, right. right by the campus. It's next to one of the most popular cookie places. It's still there. Dee Reese cookies okay. would have lines out the door. We're like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Oh, perfect. Foot traffic, all of that built in. All of it. So we scraped some money together. We actually took, and this is really scary. We took a line of credit out against Maria's parents' home. And we're like, we're going to make a key payment. Biggest check I've ever written in my life at that time. Okay. And we opened. No one came. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's exactly. To this day, it's like, (laughs) wow, what were we thinking? Why, in hindsight, why do you think it did not do well? Well, you know what we did is we thought density
1: was enough, right? We didn't look at the demo. You know, it's college kids. There, there's a certain threshold. The Didi Reese, the cookie next to place, it was quarter cookies. No Uh, wonder, right? Okay, our product, you know, average ticket back then was eight bucks. Still pretty expensive, and kids don't spend that much. There's no parking, so we still had the Wolcher corridors with all the workers, but. It's a far walk. Mm-hmm. And then this is a killer. And I don't even know what we're thinking. There was no seating. It's like wow. a couple seats, okay. you know. And so if you walked all the way from Wilshire, you've got no place to sit. And you're you know, downtown LA. Everyone goes back up into their office. It's totally normal. At UCLA, people don't do that. They want to sit, eat, and then go back to their office. So there's just a lot of things going against us. But you know what? I mean, I will have to say from those fail, you know, with that, we had to kind of reinvent ourselves and do, you know, learn about more about marketing Mm -hmm. and how to market to the kids at UCLA and then really our catering business evolving that because that was what paid the rent. And so we we hung on for a couple of years. And then at that point, Mario and I, we were already married. We were having our first child. I was pregnant and it was the hardest (laughs) pregnancy ever, but I was working. You know, I was schlepping produce up and down the stairs. I was behind the register. I was cooking behind the grill. And we said, you know, we got to do something. We, We have to change what's happening. And so we were successful. We'd made money, especially the one in downtown. We were able to okay. license out both those concepts and take that money and then kind of figure out what the next move was after so we had you, our son.
0: So did you fully sell it? Or? We sold. Okay. We, we
1: had licensed it just in case, but pretty much sold it at that time. And it was a big enough chunk of money for us to take almost a year off so we could figure out and create the business plan for today, Mendocino Farms.
0: Okay. I'd love to hear it. My husband and I always joke about anytime we go into a new business or hear a new concept, we always fantasize about being in the war room, as we call it, of hearing idea generations happen. How did Mendo evolved to what yeah. it was from SKUs?
1: You know, Mendo was already in the hopper with SKUs. I know that sounds crazy. So we were successful in downtown LA and had a really good name in downtown LA. We also had landlords who were very interested in having us go into their locations. So a couple landlords had reached out to us while we had SKUs and said, hey, we have this empty space. Do you guys have any other concepts? And so Mario and I, as you know, he's a serial entrepreneur. I mean, the guy is the most creative person ever. We'd been throwing around some ideas already. And so one landlord had asked us to present five concepts, and one of them was Medicino Farms, a sandwich and salad place. At that time when Mario and I were trying to figure out like what's our next move, we both knew we wanted to stay in this restaurant industry. But you know, we go, we got to find something that's a bit bigger niche. And so as we were kind of going through the list of the better categories, Category you had better Mexican, better Asian, better pizza, better burgers. We went to better sandwiches, and mm-hmm. we we're like, oh, there's no better sandwiches, right? Because there was Subway, the Subway, right? Subway's solid, but it's mm-hmm. fast food. Mm-hmm. So we thought to ourselves, couldn't we do something in this genre that is more premium, using really great ingredients, and then being able to serve it kind of at the kind of more eight to ten dollar price okay. range? And so, kind of doing a lot of research, looking at what was happening in LA, there was a lot of great cafes mm-hmm. who serve great sandwiches with, with better ingredients. There's like, I don't know if you're familiar with like Jones on third, really regionalized or Dean and DeLuca. Okay, yep. mm-hmm. We're like, they do really well in their sandwich case. But what if we just focused on it? We did, made it up in volume. We really understood catering at that time. Okay. And we said, you know what, not only is it portable for people to take on the go, but we can actually serve it in masses. So with that volume, we could serve it at
0: better pricing. Did you think about that as you were thinking about like Asian food, pizza, Italian? Did you think about margins first in terms of?
1: I don't know if margins ever led with food because I'll be honest, like margins are just sucky in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like a pennies game. I think it was more what could people relate to? When you think about sandwiches for us, it was like Anything between two pieces of bread, everyone understood. And I think we got burned so bad with what's teriyaki. Mm-hmm. So it's like the three-second elevator pitch. The minute you say sandwich, everyone's like, oh, I get it. Right. right. You don't. Who cares what's in the middle? It's a sandwich.
0: So I had my first Mendo experience in your San Francisco location. And I like sandwiches. But what was extraordinary was I left almost skipping. <laughs> it, it was happy. It was joyful. And the food was great. But I felt better than just having a good sandwich. And so then I went online and I read your food reviews. And I wasn't surprised that on Yelp and other food sites that people shared the same experience I did, and not just in San Francisco, but all the stores also in Southern California and in the peninsula, the reviews were almost cult-like in this positive fellowship, where, you know, some people were going three or four or five days a week. How did you create this connection for people with just sandwiches and salads?
1: For us, we always, we talk about who we are and what we sell and our product is never sandwiches or salads or food. Our product is selling happy. It sounds totally corny. <laughs> but one of the things, even this was an excuse too, is that relationship that you build with your guests, it means so much more. And we train this with all our team members and like, I don't get it. I go, okay, look at all these lawyers. Look at all these admin people who walk through. They're bummed when they come into lunch because they've been beaten up all day. The minute you smile and you acknowledge them and you take care of them, Literally, it transforms who they are and what's happened to them. Right, it's a world of difference, total difference, and the human connection, which back then we didn't even realize how important it is. But I think today it's even more. We're connected only by our phones. We barely talk to each other anymore. So the minute you walk into Mendocino Farms, our thing is we sell you happy. It's an experience. We do things very differently. Most fast casuals, Fast casual is basically fast food with better food, right? You go to the counter, you order, you get your food, you sit down, and it's still a transaction. We don't call our customers customers or guests because again, a customer is a transaction. Right. You give me money, I take your money and we're done. But you're a guest. So you're like a guest in our home. John Mackey in his book, Conscious Capitalism, he talks about an oasis owner and what does it mean to be an oasis owner, right? And then the first question he asks is, what would you sell if you own an Oasis? And everyone goes, water, natural, right? And it's the same thing like us, food, sandwich, Mm -hmm. salad. But he's like, couldn't we be so much more? When you come to my Oasis, I'll give you water, but how about... Everything mm-hmm. else that goes over and beyond, we could be so much more, and for us, we just believe that Mendo is so much more. okay. And for us, we really believe in building relationships. and then this goes back to kind of what I reference is to give back to the community. It's really important for us to give back to the community in every single store that we open. and having that tie and having that opportunity to give back is so important to us. It's you know we say profits create possibilities. Mm-hmm. Making money is great, but it's just like Conscious Capitalism. We need to make money so we can pay our team members, but it's to enrich the lives of our team members and their families and then the neighborhoods that we go into.
0: That brings up my next question. You have over 20 restaurants now. It must have been easier to control the first few and apply that message and culture of community. But how did you keep that consistency of message and performance with all of the restaurants?
1: It's the one thing that keeps us up like all the time is how do we make sure that that culture continues to live? I believe our culture is stronger today than it was even when Mario and I were just in it all the time. How do you do that? um, It's a process. I know it sounds, I hate to dummy it down to a process, right? And it really is investment and training. All our team members who are hired actually have to come through two day, we call it base camp. This is base camp you're in right now. They come in through two days of intensive, just cultural, like understanding our why, who we are. And unlike most restaurants, we actually take the time. Most restaurants are like, here's your apron, here's your book, go give great service and be a great team member, right? That's it. They also get to taste through all our food because really important to us, share the food, share the farms that we work with. It's another huge value of ours is we want to support farmers that deserve it. And so we want to introduce and talk to them about all those different aspects. And then the most important part is we give them the tools to do their job. So we call it just the basics, right? You have to know how to do certain things. But in order to sell happy, what's that wow? And what are those things that you do at every point of contact? which for most restaurants is called steps of service. So at every point of contact that a guest comes to you at, or even not, but just where you are, we give them the wows. And it's these are the things you can do to make sure that you're selling happy. Did you read that anywhere or did you come up with that over time? It was just something that for my husband and I started with SKUs and we just kept building on it. And it's also really important. Like I said, we've brought on such great team members Mm -hmm. here at Basecamp who've just helped us take it to the next level. And there's just basic things that we always tell people. This is a food job, but it can be so enriching because it's something you can take once you leave too.
0: Love that. Uh, Have you ever read a book by Andy Grove called High Output Management? No. He talks a lot about, it sounds like you're focused on training and the culture, and he talks a lot about the reward and how fruitful it is to use top tier management to train people because a lot of people come to an organization and they assume that if they're senior enough, you don't need training. And he says, ultimately, the best use of his time is to train his team so that they could then disseminate that and make it much more efficient, which-
1: Which is so true because you can't be everywhere at the same time. And we believe like, you know, we'll say we're a restaurant, but we're also a leadership company because we do want to make sure that our leaders are able to give that message to our team. And so how many restaurants do you have today? We have 21 and we're about to open up 22 in a couple weeks. Wow.
0: And is it primarily in LA? I know there's one in San Francisco. Um,
1: all across Northern California. So LA down to San Diego. And then in NorCal, we actually have three in the South Bay. Okay. i mean in Campbell, San Jose, and uh, San Mateo. And then in San Francisco. Right.
0: What is the ultimate goal? Do you want to just have hundreds everywhere or how do you see it growing?
1: I think the most important thing, and it goes back to sharing our why. I'd love to be in a lot of different neighborhoods, but again, not all neighborhoods. It has to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. We don't want to grow just to grow. It's not all about just
0: the dollars, but yes, we are looking to
1: grow. Like next year we'll
0: be in Houston. You seem very detail-oriented and also hyper-efficient. While you focus on the process at work to strengthen the guest interactions at Mendo, do you have a personal process that you can share with others that kind of look to you and admire your ability to get so much done? I'm very
1: organized. (laughs) I can tell. It's very clear. (laughs) Because it's the only (laughs) way. So using my calendar is really important. I calendar pretty much personal, professional, everything to like the minute almost. I'm old school. I have a notebook. Literally every day I have my just to do's, but I also have my goals that are I, I set for myself and I carry them over. So before I go home, I always go through my book and make sure that whatever isn't done, I carry over the next day. If it's a goal, it, it lives a little bit longer because that's how then I hold my team accountable because right. we're all working towards something. But literally, it's very much organized. And I will always go back and reference my notebooks, even for what happened last year, or the year before. That's incredible. So I keep myself very organized. It's just checkoff list. Right.
0: One of the things we had talked about before the show was your mottos. For our listeners, I wish you could see their office. They call it Basecamp in Southern California, but there's all these inspiring mottos and sayings throughout the building and painted on. One of them in particular that I know motivates you is called G-Bed. Can you share more about what that is? The G-Bed. It's called Getting Better Every Day. So it's interesting
1: because everyone always goes, you know, what are your biggest failures? And I think we can always learn from ourselves, even when we do great things. And so- We ask of our team members to get better every day. Your win today is your win today. Tomorrow is a new day. And so status quo is not something that we're comfortable with, both my husband and I. It's like, we're always thinking about, you know what, everyone will be like, you guys are doing such a great job, or this is so great. And I'm like, no, we can do better. Right. And that's the mentality that we have here that we, again, ask all our team members. And that GBED is something that we roll out every Friday. Our VP of training rolls out the GBED and it basically has, what are we going to work on this week? And that's what we talk about. But anything we do, the biggest thing I always ask my team, they'll be like, I'm so sorry I messed up or I made them. I'm like, no, you didn't make a mistake. We learn from those, right? How are we going to change? Well, how are we going to get better from that? And I think that's the most important thing is the process and not the outcome. And that's what I always tell them. Let's think about the process. If we can make that process better, the outcome is always, we all want to achieve this, right. but let's figure out how, what that process looks like and how
0: we can improve each day. How much do you think running the business and just kind of restaurant management has improved or benefited from your background working with a CFO and being more numerate than I think most restaurant Mm -hmm. owners? Because I I always feel like restaurants are bad businesses in terms of just economically. I
1: mean, yeah, totally. Nine out of 10 fail, right? (laughs) Everyone knows that stat. I think it's really helped. I think one of the things that has been the most impactful is Everyone always says, Ellen, you're the most boring person. But (laughs) it gets you to understand that your business really intimately. And I was really fortunate because... One of my mentors from when I was in my 20s, when we first started this, she was the partner at our accounting firm. And we had no business talking to her then. <laughs> it, was our, it was a referral because I'm like, we're trying to clean up this business. I just need some help. We might have to like redo some of our taxes. And she goes, okay, you got to talk to the best restaurant accountants in LA. So I still remember Mar and I pretending like we're really like professional. And I think I wore like the skirt for the first time versus sneakers with like a button down <laughs> shirt pretending I look smart. And we went to this beautiful office with like all the glass and you got to see the skyline of Los Angeles. I'm like, this is going to cost us way too much money. And here comes the partner D Stein. She's like 4'11". with like (laughs) I still remember short, puffy hair and it was just a pit bull. She came in like barking orders and I was like, oh crap, we're so screwed. And to this day, I appreciate her so much. She basically said to me when I said, oh, you guys can do all our bookkeeping. You can do all this for me. She goes, nope. I'm not doing any of this for you. I'm going to teach you and you're going to do it on your own or you will fail. And I remember those words. You will fail if you don't do this yourself. You can't understand your business if you let someone else run it for you. Incredible. So she basically mentored me and taught me everything through the financial part of it and accounting because it was not my strong suit. I was econ but non-accounting major. Mm-hmm. And I still remember she had brain cancer and she was literally going through chemo and she would call me and just check in just to make sure everything was okay. She didn't have to. We were pretty good at that point, right? Wonderful human being. Amazing. I give her so much kudos for where we're at today because she helped me build the foundation. Wow.
0: Was there anything in learning the economics and the accounting side of restaurant businesses that was surprising that maybe most listeners don't know?
1: Yeah, it costs so much. There's so (laughs) many. I mean, it's crazy, right? You don't think about all the little tiny things that add up. And if you're not careful, but I think What you can't lose sight of is if all you care about is every single penny, you're actually going to lose sight of how you make the money, right? And I think you start cutting corners. And I think people, especially when you're starting to grow a business, you're like, I got to make money. And so for Mario and I, it's never about making the money. It's about how do we take care of our guests and our team? Mm -hmm. Because if you take care of and you stick to what your core value and product is, that in itself is going to make you stand out. It's kind of like the whole Simon Sinek why. It's like, find your why and make sure you live by your why. Mm-hmm. And then everything else will come. And so for us, we always talk about it. It's like your financial, your PL at the very end, your EBITDA. It's a good scorecard. Right. But everything else will flow through if you take care of the most important thing. How do you guys balance that? We don't. <laughs> we suck at it. <laughs> we joke about it every day. I mean, I always joke. If we weren't in this together, we'd probably be apart. But because, I mean, we literally live, eat, breathe <laughs> Mendocino farms. It's our baby. Mm-hmm. But we're bad at balancing it. We're trying to get better and we work on that every day. So we try to get better every day. We're actually celebrating our 16th anniversary tomorrow. Oh, and we're just talking about that. We're like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? But we've gone through. I mean, it's he's probably one of, you know, again, when you talk about support, we could not do this without each other. So, pretty awesome.
0: So, you mentioned this is kind of like your baby. What about your children? How do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you actually incorporate your, how do your children into
1: them? this? Uh, they live and breathe my no-too. No. You know what? It's somehow, I, I think it's, it's so part of our lives. And it kind of like the valleys that we talk about, we try to ingrain with them. Currently, right now, my son is 13 and he's in his teenage years. And so, failure, like, I want a helicopter and micromanage every step, but one of the things I'm trying to work with him on is you know what you're gonna fail on your own and you should learn from your mistakes. I was just having lunch with a mom and I was telling him I'm gonna go yeah, let him fail. I stopped managing his homework and he failed. He got enough literally I've never seen that grade before and it shocked me. <laughs> you know and I think that was an eye-opener. I let him fail like we let him fail, which is hard but because of it, I kind of have seen him take steps to work on getting better each day. And he says it every day. Mom, you remember when I got that F? I don't want to do that again. You're so, like, I sure do. <laughs> uh, you know, start young. Right. <laughs> they're great. They love Mendo just as much. And they're really proud. I think one of one of the coolest things I, th- I said to my kids one day, it was a couple of years ago when... I was really just like trying to figure out what to do because I'm like, I'm so stressed out. Do I stop working? Do I work part-time? And I said to them, just throwing it out there as a joke, I go, what if mom stopped working? And my daughter goes, we won't be able to eat. How are we (laughs) going to make money? And it was such a powerful statement that my daughter viewed me as an equal in terms of bringing home. Incredible. So it was kind of, I'm like, you know what? This is kind of cool. So it's kind
0: of a learning experience for them as well. I hope they're entrepreneurs one day. It's incredible. Do you have any advice on how to manage time? Because it seems like you either don't sleep or somehow have found a little bit of a secret to managing all the competing priorities that I we don't deal have with. A secret?
1: <laughs> you know what? It's just I am really trying to work on it myself. So I wish I had the answer, but as I've gotten older, it's how can I enjoy this process more? How do I find my own happiness? Because I talk about happiness for a lot of people. I used to work even at night when I got home, but I try to now kind of shut my computer off and hang out with my kids as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And then if I have to get on, I get back on. But I'm going to take a couple of those moments of what makes me the most happy and just really try to live in that moment. Easier said than done, I know, but I I really am trying to relish in that more.
0: You had mentioned with one of the SKUs restaurants, that was a big learning lesson as you guys try to expand in Westwood. Is there another memorable or impactful failure or struggle or obstacle that you think has helped you improve and grow, both yeah. either personally or professionally?
1: Yes. So this is more personal. And I was thinking about this, actually, the other day. I'm not a, I'm an introvert and I don't really, being business partners with my husband, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because it's, he's male. I'm obviously female. And even in the, especially in this industry, I think it's in every industry, it's very male-focused. Right, dominated. I mean, and so it was always the Ellen. You're the assistant, right? Or you're you work part time, right? You're not as important, Mara. You're, the... and I actually the sad part is I kind of let that story live because I'm like, it's fine. I'm still taking care of the kids. So you know what? Being a woman, that's just normal, right? Let it be and don't tell the story and don't get out there and be like, no, I'm a fifty fifty partner. Right. I wish I told that story from the get-go and pushed my husband to help me tell that story. I think the the pivotal moment was, I want to say it was five years ago, six years ago. I had this lady come. She called me up and she goes, Ellen, and it's a really big National Women's Association. And we want to nominate you for this award. And I- How wonderful. Most people would say that. I literally freaked out. I said, (laughs) A, I don't want to public speak. I don't think I deserve this because I kind of lived my story. And my husband said, you're crazy. And I go, no, no, no. I I told them no. I actually, I told them no. I go, thank you so much, but maybe not this year. And that pivotal moment of, Mm -hmm. I need to actually own this role. I need to not be, if I have fear and I'm scared of something, I should be embracing it. Because again, being a leader I shouldn't be comfortable. Like I I need to be uncomfortable if I want to get better every day. Just that vulnerability and sharing that. And it was really interesting. And I was like, I can't believe I just did that. So I probably five years ago wouldn't have done this podcast Mm -hmm. with you because I don't want to hear my own voice. I, I I felt like I had nothing to offer. And so it's been interesting. And my husband, he's not keeping me back. He... I just never wanted that, but now I'm like, you know what? I can make a difference, and I'm not going to turn these opportunities down, even though they scare the heck out of me, <laughs> and I don't think I deserve it because I think we all deserve it, and I think you know, and I think that's one of the challenges of being a woman—less confident than men. And I'm like, you know right. what? I've helped build. Like, I'm part of why Mendo is who we are. We're part of who we are part because of, like of, a meaningful and significant so contribution. It's been there. really interesting that a whole evolution of. Women can do a lot of stuff and we are just as important regardless if it's professional business. Like, so that was that moment of, I can't believe I turned something like that down. Did
0: you then call them back and say, I changed my mind? No,
1: (laughs) no, no, no. I I actually then said, you know, and there was always opportunities for speaking. I've always turned them down. And literally I was like, nope, no more. I'm going to get out there. Even if it scares the gaga out of me, I'm going to do this. Why do you think, what, what is your fear? or What are you scared of? You know what? It's that whole, like, I have nothing important to say. Right. Like who am I to tell people about stuff? Because I'm learning just as I go along. And I think that's the vulnerability. And mm-hmm. that I think there's a lot of like, well, you know what? And this is what my husband said. If you can just impact one person who cares about that big, huge room, just one person who can listen to your message and take something from it, that's all that matters. It still scares me, but I'm just again at this point, it, it was kind of the shift and maybe the confidence that I needed. And honestly, the interesting part is at that time I was reading the book Lean In with Shell Sandberg. It was kind of like finding a voice at the table and the seat at the table. I was like, dude, I I should have a seat at the table. I shouldn't be sitting on the sidelines because I do just as much. And my husband's like, yeah, get over here. I've been telling you
0: this this whole time. That's wonderful. And how does that affect any meeting you have on the business side, whether it's through financing or investing? Have you seen yourself evolve to be a stronger voice or advocate in ways that surprise you?
1: Yeah. Which this was also the kind of, it was all coming around 2012-ish. We had our first private equity company invest in us. And I'm to this day, if I can learn from stuff was I was very silent and let my husband lead the whole thing. And they, I think because of that, even though we were 50-50 partners and I was just as important to the business, they didn't feel like I was because I didn't, wasn't part of that because I didn't want to be, or I didn't feel like I needed to be, or I wasn't worth being part of that process, which sounds crazy. Even at that point, I'm the person who is doing this, you know, the whole pay equality. I'm like, right. I don't need to get paid as much, right? It's okay. Like, let's not make this screw up the investment. Let's, let's change my pay structure. So you get paid more, I get paid less and they'll want the both of us. Right. Which is crazy, so I I totally shot myself in the foot, and so through the process with us, I love them; they're a great company, mm-hmm. but they didn't see the value that I brought to the table because I set myself up for that, you know, for that. And in the second round, you know, I was like, "That's not happening again, Mario." Like, I'm going to be sitting right
0: next to you. Right. So, you know, just a shift in mentality. Oh, I love that so much. One of my favorite kind of sayings that stuck with me is. You cannot be what you don't see. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for you to even share this conversation because I feel like you really will impact not just one but many, many other people. Whether it's you know men or women, but kind of introverts versus extroverts. Hearing someone share that saying, "Hey, you know what?" I do want to nudge a little bit closer to the table, if not get a seat at the table. So I find the story very, very inspiring.
1: Well, thank you. And this is what I always say. Even if I sound stupid, who cares? Because sometimes <laughs> I listen, I'm like, did they just say that? That was okay from to say that. Why am I always so scared? Right. We all have something to say, but you know, it, it is what it is. And there's always the next day. I love that last question. What or who inspires you? I think there's multitude of people, but the one it's my mom and dad. Again, it's the whole immigrant, um, you know, coming to a different country, making helping us make something of ourselves and not having to be ashamed. But my dad, like I said, came from nothing, put himself through college, got a mentor, created his own company, super successful. So amazing that because his brother helped him, brought his brother along and then just made such an impact so to this day it's just like hard work right mm-hmm. I, and i say this hard work beats talent like if you work hard and you treat people right that's all that counts and my parents do that every single day they work hard and they treat people right even if it's not always the best for them
0: wonderful well ellen thank you so much this was such an amazing conversation that i am so happy to share with others so thank well, you thank you for having me